lots of lousy businesses. And there's lots of wonderful businesses. It's the art and science of money. My job over the years has been to try and figure out which is which. It's Hi-Fi Radio. From the AM640 studios in Toronto. With Hi-Fi portfolio managers at Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. Here's Wolfgang Klein and Jack Hartle. Good morning, Toronto. And welcome to Hi-Fi Radio. Uh, it is a lovely, lovely day. And guess what? It's a little wet, but you know something? We're going to dry it up. we got a wonderful lineup for today's show. And, of course, in the studio is my main man, Jack Hartle, my wingman, portfolio manager extraordinaire with me. Uh, we got a, a wonderful guest coming up. Joining us in the studio, he's sneaking in the back door. He wants a little bit of extra airtime out of his hair. His name is Mark from Canoe Financial. But uh, in Vancouver, we have Matt Wood. Uh, he runs a hedge fund. Uh, hedge funds are just... Uh, I think very, very unknown entities uh, that can either do very, very well or challenge people in lots of uh, media headlines. But I, I think very few of our listeners probably have owned a hedge fund. So if you're interested in hedge funds, uh, Matt Wood is going to help us along that line. Before we get to Matt, of course, just want to continue with the lineup. Uh, we're going to have a fellow named Condo Chris join us to talk about the condo market and the, the uh, challenges and uh, debates in terms of how to buy a condo and where to buy a condo, uh, followed by a little... Uh, tax lesson from Warren McCann. Uh, if you are a U.S. citizen living in Canada and are concerned about the new reporting requirements, Warren is the man who's going to put you at ease. But I, Jack and I have come across a lot of people who are U.S. citizens. A, they, they do not want to report to Uncle Sam. Warren's going to tell you why it's not such a big deal. Just comply. Hi-Fi Radio. Good morning, Toronto. All right, let's get started here with uh, Matt in Vancouver. Thank you very much for joining us, Matt. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure, Matt. So uh, you run the Vertex Value Hedge Fund. Uh, first of all, why don't you t- discuss with the audience or tell the audience what is a hedge fund and how do you run money inside your hedge fund? Well, I'm actually not really running too much of a hedge fund. Where My fund is sold via offering memorandum, which gives me a lot more flexibility than other funds. But generally, I'm a value investor, and I try to find uh, inexpensive uh, companies and sell them before they get expensive. That's pretty much what I do. So looking at your portfolio, I would say if there's anything bifurcated in this world, it would be your portfolio. Uh, on the left, you have commodities, you got trees, you got copper. And on the right, you have disruptive technology, you got fintech. So, so let's go through the logic here, Matt. <laughs> Why the two schools and, uh, and uh, share with us the wisdom? Sure. Well, well, it all starts out with value. The, the, the funny thing that's happened in the marketplace is because passive investing has be, become so uh, prolific in the marketplace that, that it doesn't matter whether it's technology, commodities, financials, there's tremendous value in everything small today. And so, you know, I, I try to find that value. I find companies that are trading at half to price to book value of the competitors of their market, uh, low PE multiples, et cetera. I found them in both spaces. But having said that, uh, it all plays into the same um, all plays in the same theme, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Internet of Things, things machine-to-machine communication, um, Internet banking, uh, automation coming out of the factory into the street with the Tesla's uh, self-driving car, et cetera, and then add to that blockchain. So all of these things are disruptive, but at the same time, you're still going to need copper to wire all those electric motors. I see. So we got the big value convention taking place this week. Warren Buffett. Jack loves Warren Buffett. Jack is a is a student of Warren. Uh, he's got all the quotes. He's got the lines. And uh, so, what's going on this weekend, Jack? Let's talk. <laughs> Matt, are you going to be joining Warren? 
Am I? I'm not. Yeah, you're not going to. What, is it Omaha? Yeah, Nebraska. Down, Nebraska. down in Nebraska I'm selling, not, I guess, some, some Dairy Queen and uh, yeah, getting some Nebraska furniture. Yeah. So so let's now go to, because copper, wood, you know, that's what we do here in Canada uh, when, when we invest. But I'm, I'm more intrigued by your, your, your knowledge of blockchain. Now, last week, we spoke about Bitcoin. Connect the two for the audience and, and, and share with us more about blockchain and, and, and why it's going to become so relevant, in your opinion. Sure. Blockchain is the the rail that Bitcoin runs on. And what what Bitcoin did was solve the double spend problem in, in a digital currency. I don't know if you followed it, but you can see Bitcoin has surpassed gold by a long shot now. <laughs> Spoke about that last week. Yeah, Something like 1600 today. And, you know, I'm not sure where it's going. I can't predict the future, but you've also got Ethereum. I think it was about uh, six, seven this time last year, it's 100 today. So there's all kinds of digital currencies. But the idea of blockchain is, is it's a distributed ledger technology where trust in it is enforced in a network rather than a big trust uh, enforcer like a bank or a stock exchange. It means that you and I can do a transaction peer-to-peer, autonomously, anonymously, anywhere in the world and have the trust enforced by the network, not worrying about the other side of the transaction. It all also happens instantaneously in, in fact, the way we trade stocks today, it's T plus three. There's six people in the transactions, a few different ledgers. Uh, this solves all of that problem. In fact, we can we can uh, certainly trade assets in, in what we'd call a T zero world, which means instantaneous. So, so what type of uh, technology or industries can employ uh, blockchain uh, efficiently and uh, make their business more efficient? Uh, everyone, from from banks to stock exchanges to uh, accounting firms. Uh, you want to talk about um, votes, voter fraud? That was, you know, it all, always comes up in the U.S. election cycle. You, you have one, uh, you, you digitalize, tokenize a, a vote. It uh, cannot be voted twice, and that's the beauty of the blockchain. It's the first time in economic history. I'm going to lay something. I think the most powerful concept of the blockchain, or the powerful idea, is that it's the first time in economic history an asset knows its owner. Um, and that that has tremendous power. Um, just in the interest of time, Matt, so uh, you have a wonderful theory here around blockchain, and I've been studying it elusively. It's, it's very, very complex stuff, but actionable idea. Do we have a way we can make money right now in blockchain? Well, unfortunately, there are very few publicly traded blockchain companies. Most, if you look at Accenture, IBM, uh, every company is in the blockchain somewhere or trying to figure out how they're going to use it to reduce their costs. And because if they don't, they're, doubt, they're going to be out of business. If you're a bank, you're not, you don't start using blockchain at some point. Um, <laughs> you're going to be done. I mean, sending currency, you name it, right? Remarkable. Uh, sending, sending, yeah, sending money should be no different than sending me emails, just zeros and ones, just data. So the only actionable idea that I have is a company called Overstock.com, which is an online retailer in the U.S. that is taking all its profits um, from its online retailing uh, business and, and investing them in blockchain today. Mm-hmm. So, so it's a very interesting way to play. You either get uh, the blockchain company for free or the, the online retailer for free. Overstock. Stock.com. Yeah, I saw that uh, this morning. As a matter of fact, it, it took a bit of a hit. I think yesterday. But uh, Matt, you're 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 a great uh, uh, equity manager, shall I say? We we, we opened up as a hedge fund manager, but uh, you, you debunk that. Um, but uh, look, great great to have you, Matt Wood, a Vertex Value Fund, live from Vancouver. A real pleasure to have you on Hi Fire Radio. Thank you very kindly. Thanks, Wolfgang. Coming up next on the show. 
Bonds, but not James. No, no, Mark Goldfried. Uh, everything you need to know about bonds and making about 3 to 4% on your money in a relatively safe fashion uh, right after this. Stay with us. There's more shows still to come. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from the AM640 studios in Toronto. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio with the Wolf on Bay Street, Wolfgang Klein. For a podcast of today's show, go to 640toronto.com or wolfgangkline.com. Now, back to the show. Here's Wolfgang and Jack. Welcome back and thank you for joining us, Hi-Fi Radio. In the studio, of course, Jack Hartle. And our special guest from Canoe Financial, Mark Goldfried, uh, a bond guru, bonds. You know, <laughs> when, when people speak about the markets, they always speak about equities, stocks. They always know what's going on in the stock market. And then if there is another asset class they want to speak to me about, it's the Canadian dollar uh, or the U.S. dollar and maybe gold and oil. Rarely do people want to speak about bonds. Uh, I cannot stress the importance of bonds in Basically, everyone's portfolio, with the exception of millennials, and hey, they're so different anyways, uh, but everyone should have some fixed income in their portfolios. And again, here is where I'm going to say active management can certainly add value, and Mark is, he tells us, an active bond manager. So, Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks, Wolf. Appreciate it. It's our pleasure. So, what is going on in the world of bonds? Well, you know, the world of bonds, as always, and as you stated at the beginning, it's an obvious thing for your clients. And, you know, as much as no one really loves this asset class and it isn't a well-loved asset class, it does exactly what you said. It provides capital preservation for your clients. It enhances income and it lowers their overall exposure to volatility. It's that shock absorber in your portfolio. So, you know, despite, you know, a lot of media attention around the bond market because interest rates are so low and this fear that rates are going to move higher, this is still an important asset class and you have to understand there's a lot of different bonds out there. They're not all created equal. Not everything's a long bond. Not everything's a short bond. Not everything's a government bond or a corporate bond. These these investments are going to continue to be an important part of your overall asset mix because of the shock absorber that they provide to it. And we can still make money in a bond fund when interest rates are going higher. So Mark, so Mark what type of bonds do you like in a rising interest rate environment? I think we can all agree that we're Rates are going higher, uh, at least deflation's off the table for the time being. So where do you allocate your uh, portfolios? Okay. How do you without, allocate them? Without getting super technical, what I really like are corporate bonds. And the reason I like corporate bonds is corporate bonds were, are going to see an improvement in their cash flow generation, the revenue generation as the economy picks up. As the economy picks up and inflation picks up, that is the other side of interest rates going higher. So investing in bonds that have exposure to to the economy, corporate bonds, we can mitigate a lot of the interest rate risk of the of government bonds moving higher. So one, when I lend money to a government today in Canada, I get about one and a half percent. If I lend money in, in the United States, I get about 2.3%. If I lend money to a triple B rated corporation today, though, in Canada, I'm going to get about three to three and a quarter percent. And in the United States, four to four and a half percent. And it's important to have that additional cash flow coupon income in that portfolio. Everybody always gets worried about the price activity of what happens when interest rates move higher. What everybody always forgets, though, is that these assets all pay a coupon. And it's the cash flow generation of that coupon that protects your downside when rates are moving higher. So it's really important to have your 
portfolio correlated to the economy or moving in the same direction as the economy because that's the inverse side of the and, and less, rate less default risk I would assume as the economy gets better too and and spreads start to to tighten that's right, right. And, so, and some, that, some capital appreciation I would imagine well you know use the term I didn't want to use uh, on radio but that's exactly what I'm talking about is that as as those corporations improve their revenue and cash flow generation their credit metrics get better and the amount of additional premium we need to lend money to those companies improves so it's exactly what you said their their risk spread compresses which is moving in the opposite direction of interest rates that are moving higher and so therefore you one get that additional benefit of the higher coupon to start with and then you have that spread tightening that offsets the interest rates moving higher and that's how we continue to produce positive returns even when rates are moving higher Mark, let me ask you a question here, again, just of a phenomena, because uh, you're primarily a domestic bond manager. But this, this uh, the phenomena that, that occurred about a year and a half ago or two years ago and plagued uh, the global financial system for some time, it perplexed it, and it was called negative interest rates. <laughs> can, can you just uh, explain to the audience what negative interest rates are and what they mean and, and, and the, the potential risk with the unknown of the outcome of dealing in a negative rate environment? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, the, I, think, I think what we're really talking about is, you know, the, there, there was a peak in negative interest rates around the world where um, corporations and retail investors were willing to lend money to governments at rates below zero, which means that they actually were paying over $100 for bonds, receiving no coupon income, and getting $100 back maybe five or 10 years in the future. But, which, but here's the question, why, why would they do it? Well, I mean- Like, the, why they, invest for a negative yield? Why not just keep your money in the bank? Right, so- because and that's the, a structural the, answer to that, okay, isn't there? Okay, and there is a structural answer, There's t- and it's two-form. And, you know, why are, ne- why are interest rates negative to start with? And that's because- interest rates are really a function of your long-term inflation expectations. So you, you look around the world up until really this year with the amount of capacity issues, meaning there was a lot of labor market capacity, productive capacity, and jurisdictions like Europe and Japan and even China were fighting deflationary pressure. So if you believe in the future that the price of goods and services is going to be lower today, then you want to be able to own a bond, even if you're going to lose money on it, because you'll lose less money on that bond than sticking that money into your mattress. And the fact of the matter is, if your government rates are negative, what you're going to get in the bank isn't going to be much more than negative. So you would be then lending money to a bank if you deposit it there at very, very low interest rates that may not be consistent with the underlying credit risk, especially given the solvency issues we've seen in European banking over the now, last now, year. So, so could condo investors condo investors in yeah. Europe get a negative yield mortgage. I want, I want you to think about that because coming up next on the show is Condo Chris. Look, if, if you have about, you know, if 10 years in your past during the nightclub scene, Condo Chris was out there, he was plaguing and 10 years later, he probably sold you a condo. You want to chat with him to find out what has changed in the condo market. But I will tell you something, interest rates are directly tied to the price of condo. So we're going to keep Mark in the studio to help us along with that as well. Coming up right after this. Stay with us. There's more show still to come. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from the AM640 Studios in Toronto. For the love of money, Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein. Talk Radio AM640. Welcome back. Condo, condo, condo. Chris is in the studio with us to talk condos. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Chris Burkowski, uh, Remax, Hallmark, uh, broker extraordinaire. So 
Chris, it, it was interesting off air. You, you shared with Jack and I uh, how business has changed for you. Uh, how you've been now a, a, a condo broker for 10 years? Uh, about 15 for me. 15 years. Yep. And of course, you you were a, 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 a club guy, shall I say, back in the 90s. I was and a nightlife guy, yes. Yes, well, you're still a nightlife guy. Uh, but uh, yeah. yes. You, you know, certain- I go to bed at nine. I wake up around five, 5.45 in the morning at the latest. So uh, my mornings are my most cherished part of my day right now after spending 20 years up all night. I'm totally with you on that one. Totally. Um, anyways, your, your 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 clientele has changed. The market has changed in the last 15 years. So share with us where are you at right now in the condo market, and uh, where are the opportunities? Where are the challenges that you see for 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 buyers, for sellers, and for you as a, as, as an agent? So the market has definitely changed. It's funny. I was just speaking with your with your previous guest, Mark, and he's a condo investor. He owns a lot of condos. He's also a bond manager. I, I got to challenge him. Asking why his money's on the bond market instead of it's in the condo market. Well, Both interest pro- rates sensitive. He loves sensitivity to interest rates. He doesn't. He can't get enough sensitivity to interest rates. He he's well diversified, obviously. But uh, you know, in the Lower East Side, as I call it, where he's talking about where he owns a lot of his properties. Uh, recently, for example, distillery district on Mill Street, uh, resale condo got 1100 bucks a square foot. And so um, that's... Mark's getting pretty excited here. Yeah, he's loving it, yep. right? So he's... Most <laughs> of my stuff, I bought at 575 to 600 So yeah, I'm feeling good. So he's... he's so I'm, I'm he's thinking unit price, but, but gentlemen, you're speaking square, square foot, square price, foot price, 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 price. Okay, square we're foot. selling feet now. Yeah, yes, we are. we're selling feet. Yeah. We're not selling better. condos. We're selling better. feet. It's, it's oh very, boy, is, is very... that like an odd lot purchase? <laughs> I know it's. It, Mark knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, you have to always well, be wary when the odd lot purchase comes lots, along. When we when we speak of freehold real estate, we usually talk about lot size. We say it's 50 by 150 or it's 200 by 300. When we talk about condos, we basically compare square footage is the first stat that we sort of go to. Mm-hmm. So at these rates, are people getting priced out of the market? Uh, what are you yeah. seeing with your clients? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, I mean, people that have, you know, there used to be, I mean, it's gone up so quick, right? We've gone up 30% basically in the last six months in the condo market as well, right? Um, For me, what I'm finding is a lot of people uh, from, especially from a lot of this is investment driven and they're buy and hold type people. So for example, when I meet a guy like Mark and he says, hey, I own five or six condos, I go, hey, great, let's go sell them. He doesn't want to sell them. What he's he's looking for is good long-term tenants and cash flow. Right. So my job as an agent has kind of gone beyond selling and it's more about now property management and finding people tenants and dealing with that sort of thing. So, uh, I mean, even from a marketing perspective for me, when I say I could put a, a flyer in your mailbox like every other agent, hey, free home evaluation, you don't care. You know, you know better than I do. I mean, we were talking about a building that I wasn't even familiar with recently and I'm condo Chris. I'm supposed to know every building, you know, and that's another challenge that now the the buyer is so well educated. And it, Mike, Chris, I want to ask you, because I'm just thinking about Mark here, the bond guy owning all these condos. Um, how many of your clients, what percentage of your clients own more than one unit, Chris? I, I would say probably 80% at the moment. 80% of your wow. customers own more than one condominium. Well, when we're speaking condominiums. Which is therefore investment or speculative it, activity. It's, it's all invest. Most of my. Because that's the first man to get out. If, if there's a call on the loan, and I take it, Mark, going back to the, to the bunga here, uh, I take it you have mortgages on all of yeah, your I units. Yeah, I do. I, you know, I'll, I'll be completely transparent with you guys. I put 30% down on properties. When I bought them, that's what allowed me with the mortgage rates at that time to carry those properties flat. So, so you have. Five, six, seven units. I have five units. Five units, and yeah. each unit's worth about five, six hundred grand. Uh, it depends. They're they're different square so footage. So you're, you're a couple, couple million bucks, are... couple million bucks of debt, and you're and you're you're a debt manager. 
So 70%, 70%. Now, it's a little bit less, but I do have a little leverage. I mean, interest rates are very low. I was looking, and I'll tell you guys, I was looking for an asset that was a little non-correlated in my day-to-day life. I am in the financial business. I did work for a large insurance company through the credit crisis, and I did see its default swap spreads move out and its stock move very, very low. And I looked at those guys walking out of Lehman Brothers in 2008 and felt like it was necessary for me to diversify some of my assets into something hard and fixed. Right. So, so, so Chris, now what, what are the challenges? You, you mentioned to me that some of your clients are, are, are selling their Toronto condo and moving out of the area code. Uh, and hence, do you, think, you, you believe that it's going to then be a challenge for you to maintain a relationship with them because you're condo Chris, you're not the Aurora King. Absolutely. Well, I I have become a little bit of the Aurora King and the Tottenham King and Orangeville and Cambridge King lately. So uh, if it's not too, I I try not to go any further than an hour out. But with a lot of these clients, um, first of all, I sell their house down here. Then they want to move out to the burbs. They don't want me to refer them to an agent out there. And um, I kind of end up taking them out there. And then I know when they're there. I'm not going to see them probably for another 10 years anyway. And even then, they're not going to call me because they're going to have a local agent that they'll probably deal with in that time. So, yeah, I've, I've got a migration of clients cashing out. The, the sure. last the last question I want to ask you, gentlemen, again, uh, this, this week, and uh, we, we saw a lot of stress on home capital, alternative lender. Um, uh, in terms of financing, how challenging is it to, to, to get financing. And Mark, you got, you're, you're, you're carrying five units. Uh, is there a yeah. risk that one day the banks don't want to refinance you? But I want, I want to keep it over to Chris for a second okay. here yeah. on that front. Do your clients, are they finding more and more challenging to get financing? Absolutely. Financing is by far the biggest the biggest problem, right? Because you've got to qualify at, what, 4.6% out right now and you need 20% down. Even if you're only, uh, so they're qualifying you for more than you can, than you've got. Right, just trying to put a little cushion in there, but uh, most of my clients, I, I found like, especially in the Toronto market, most people that are just sort of down home Toronto people, they don't come from a lot of money. They're they're working and they're earning their own money. A lot of them were sort of at the cusp, right, with with the way things right. were, and now that we're sort of, we've you know, the financing is that, yeah. financing is different over a million bucks too, right? So yeah. as the market approaches a million bucks. As soon as we hit a million, it knocks off it's, most of the comments. It's unbelievable. Everyone in Toronto, if you own a home, I guess we're all millionaires now. Congratulations. <laughs> condo Chris, uh, the condo king in Toronto, thank you very, very much for joining us. As indicated, are you a U.S. citizen and are afraid of Uncle Sam? Let us help quell your worries. Warren McCann is going to be in the studio right after this. Money. Don't go anywhere. There's more great show right after this. Money. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from the AM640 Studios in Toronto. Welcome back to Hi-Fi Radio. If you have any questions about today's show or financial questions you need answered, go to WolfgangKlein.com. And now back to the show. Here's Wolfgang and Jack. Money, 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 and taxes. Warren McCann, Cudlow McCann, and Elena Trambidis are here to join us. If you're an American living in Canada, turn up your radio, stop what you're doing, pay attention. We're going to help you here. Thank you very much for joining us on Hi-Fi Radio. Good morning. Good morning. So, Warren, uh, you, you and I had a meeting a couple months ago, and I got excited about what you had to say. I said, I'm going to have to get you on my new radio show, Hi-Fi Radio. Uh, we have we Jack and I have a lot of clients or a number of clients who are U.S. citizens, and they fear reporting to the IRS, the the American authorities. Uh, 
and Jack and I continue to encourage them, come clean, declare, it's not that big of a deal. But they say, I don't want the Americans to know what I do. I have not lived in America for more than one day of my life. I, I have a situation where a person was born on a tarmac, uh, on a military base in America, to Canadian parents, but that person became American, came back to Canada, and spent their entire life in Canada, yet they now are being told that they must report to the IRS, and they, they don't want to do it. So what is your advice to Americans living up in Canada? Uh, very good question. And we, and we get this almost every day. Um, what happens with regards to Americans living in Canada or dual citizens, Canadian and U.S. citizens living in Canada, is that uh, a number of them are filing with the IRS and Department of Treasury, their annual U.S. returns, but there are many, many, many that don't. Right. And like, for example, Warren, when, when I open up an account for a client, uh, and, and uh, Jack, Jack, this is Jack's area of expertise, help me with this here. <laughs> oh, and one of the questions, <laughs> are, the questions are, are, are you an American citizen? Oh, yeah. And, 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 and you know, every now and then, I, I assume everyone's a Canadian citizen, not an American, but sure enough, yes, people say, oh, I have to answer that question. Hmm. Yeah, well, and they pause. a lot of the time. And well, they, they sort of want to lie to me, which, of course, our clients, for the most part, don't do. Well, I've, I've seen some statistics that say that there's, there's almost a million Americans or dual citizens uh, living up in Canada. Wow. So, so do, that's do why any, you're, you're getting it. Do they have anything it. to fear uh, about getting caught up with their taxes? So they've never filed uh, in the U.S. or with the IRS. They don't work in the States. They don't they work, work in, in the Canada. States. They have nothing to do with them, no ties, no affiliations. Um, what, what's the process of getting caught up, caught up with their taxes? Um, yeah, the ramifications. Yeah, there, there, there is a, uh, a is there streamlined any- amnesty now for straightforward, uh, non-compliant uh, American citizens or dual citizens that you can use. And we've used the streamlined amnesty process um, for a few years, and it's worked wonderfully. Uh, basically what happens is that if you haven't filed in a number of years, if you're a U.S. citizen, because a U.S. citizen, let me backtrack a bit, a U.S. citizen is taxed based on citizenship in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So no matter where you live in the world, you could live in the Middle East, you could live in Africa, you would still have to file a U.S. personal return based on citizenship. Canada, what we do is we tax based on tax residency. So for example, Wolfgang, if you... Or hockey players are good. Like, give right. us a hockey player analogy. Yeah, let's in Canada. Say, let's say a, a Canadian hockey player decides to. Um, well, they uh, play hockey in multiple yeah, provinces yeah, and states. Yeah, and let's say the Canadian hockey player, although he played junior in hockey in Ontario, uh, got drafted and is playing for um, Anaheim, and he decides, well, you know what, I'm just going to move to California because I love the sun, and uh, I'm going to cut all my social and economic ties with Canada, and I'm going to move down to California. If he's a Canadian citizen, he will uh, not have to file as a resident of Canada if he's moved permanently down to California. Mm -hmm. Um, And what would happen is he would just file as a resident alien of the U.S. and as a resident of California, and he might have to pay some state tax for for uh, different work days in different U.S. states with regards to to uh, playing but, but let's go back now then to, to the amnesty. What, what if you don't want to file the streamlined process and you go along as an American citizen living in Canada, working in Canada? Really, what can Uncle Sam do? 
What can they do? What can they do? They, 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 they're going to bag you up in an orange suit and drag you home? Uh, well, if they, um, what usually precipitates people com- coming forward is usually there's some sort of critical event. Event, right. Yeah, like, for example, if their parents die in, let's say, Denver. Uh-huh. And all of a sudden, there's their uh, beneficiary of an estate right. there, and and the all of a sudden there start there's some tax slips in their names going to the IRS in the form of a K one or or a U.S. reporting slip. They get nervous, and then they they think, oh, I better start complying. Mm-hmm. So because Uncle Sam all of a sudden is seeing these slips or this information coming in from, let's say, the estate or or whatever investments. Because the other point is a lot of this has come from basically 9-11, and and the world did change. It changed radically. Uh, So bank accounts, for example. Americans must report any international bank account now with the authorities. Is that correct? That's correct. uh, And and if they don't, what are the consequences? Well, there there are consequences. Uh, What happens is... Like a simple checking account with with 38 bucks in it. Well, no, no, there's a a threshold of 10,000 U.S. Okay, so it's, you know, if you have $1,000 in a a Canadian bank account, then there would be no uh, reporting. You're listening to Warren McCann, Cuddler McCann. Uh, we're talking tax and Uncle Sam. And uh, coming right up after this break, we're going to continue the conversation because it is so relevant. And so stay tuned. Let's keep learning. Don't go anywhere. There's more great show right after this. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from the AM640 Studios in Toronto. For the love of money. Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein. Talk Radio, AM 640. Welcome back. In the studio is Warren McCann and Elena Trambidis of Cudlow McCann. We're talking U.S. citizens living up here in Canada. Amnesty. Warren, you mentioned that there is a streamlined process for, shall I say, coming clean with your former uh, resident of America, if you're an American citizen living up here in Canada. So how do you go about the process uh, for uh, declaring back to Uncle Sam all those years that you have been quiet and missing? Okay, well, let's take uh, a simple example. Let's say someone hasn't filed, who lives in Toronto, an American citizen, hasn't filed, let's say, in 10 years. And their financial affairs are relatively straightforward. They might have, you know, an employment job. They might have some some RSPs, they might have a non-registered investment account. An RESP, maybe a TFSA? Yeah, they could. They could, but those add complications. I know they do. That's so, so, I, <laughs> so I wanted to just keep it relatively straightforward. So the Streamline Amnesty, what it does is that it, if you qualify, it, it, they only ask you to go back three years to file U.S. returns. So you don't have to go back 10. Mm-hmm. You can file the, the previous three years of U.S. tax, uh, tax returns. And there, and on that return, you would basically say, I worked in Canada, I made $75,000 right. a year. And, and what would happen normally if it's all Canadian source income, um, there would probably be little or no U.S. tax paid. Hence the tax treaty. Yeah, and, and sourcing, it, because Canada's say, already taxed that, so you get a U.S. foreign tax credit uh, for the Canadian taxes paid. And I would say we're also taxed at a higher rate personally yeah. here up in Canada. Yeah. 
so they won't tax you down there. There's right. nothing left to there's, give to the Americans. That's, there's yeah. nothing left. Yeah, the, the rates, the, the rates. Kathleen's got it all. The, the rates are higher up here. And generally. the guy with the hair. <laughs> yeah. But not in all circumstances. Perhaps Some seniors, for example, might have lower rates than in the U.S., depending on what their, their uh, income is. Mm-hmm. And if you file the three years of U.S. personal returns and six years of the foreign FBAR, which is the foreign bank account information returns to the Department of Treasury, then going forward, you're clean. Now, the. the and the, sorry, I want to ask you so a simple question here, uh, Warren, please. So, um, can you go to your Canadian CA, your Canadian accounting firm, to do this, or do you need to use a U.S. Uh, uh, preparer? Good question. So, what you would need to do is use an accountant that is uh, registered with the the Internal Revenue Service. Are you? Are you is your we're firm, a registered preparer. So Warren McCann, Cudlow McCann can be your man. That's right. And if not, Elena Trambitas can be your woman to take care of this. So there is, there is a registration process that that goes on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what happens is once the amnesty is is submitted, then um, provided it's approved, then there's there will be no late filed penalties. And a lot of the U.S. foreign declaration forms, like um, the foreign bank account information return, have substantial penalties, like the minimum penalty is 10,000 U.S. for late filing or omissions. So so we take the, a The rev- fear of God has been yeah. instilled in Canadians or U.S. citizens in Canada. Yeah, so, so, so this amnesty is really a good thing. But see, see here, here's our issue. When a client comes to us to open up a new brokerage account, they have not been asked for maybe 10 or 15 or 20 years about their U.S. citizenship. And then along comes I, and I have to ask the question, are you an American citizen? And I said, oh, no, I haven't <laughs> filed. I have not declared. All has been good until today. I met you, Wolfgang. You asked me that question. How do I answer it? I say, well, truthfully. What, what does it actually cost to get caught up? Uh, let's get to that point, I guess. Uh, on a basic return, on a, on a simple amnesty return, good. I I would say you know the amnesties that we see are probably in it running anywhere from a few thousand dollars to many more thousands if they have a complications and complications involved, you know, holding of certain types of investments or if they're like like here's but, one but of the at the end of, at the end of the day, it's actually better to to declare that uh, U.S. source income file with the IRS. Then incur the potential penalties. I would assume. Is yeah, like I, I'm, I'm really a proponent of of being compliant with the. Uh, so US so are we, but, but I'm saying from a, from a yeah, dollar that's what we do in Canada. Yeah, <laughs> but right. I want to ask. I want to come on to a question, Jack. You brought this up. Um, Americans who end up getting married and hence now are a homeowner, directly or indirectly. Are they subject to tax if they sell their appreciate homes are up at thirty percent by the way in the last year oh, in Canada? Wonderful. Are, are, they, are Toronto, they subject to tax by selling their Canadian property to the IRS? They can be. That's unbelievable. Yeah, that, that's uh, still well, one they, Canadian. Well, uh, what happens is you remember Americans have to function under two sets of tax rules, right? They have the U.S. tax rules because they're U.S. citizens, and they have the Canadian tax rules. Our Canadian tax rules. If we sell our principal residence and it's designated as our principal residence, if it goes up a million dollars, we don't generally pay any tax on it. Correct. If you, if you're speculators an American, and, and the yeah, second home like, buyers would, yeah, right. like but your principal residence. Yeah, no, if, you're, if, if it's a if it's a principal residence. Yeah, uh, but if it, if you're an American and you have a million dollar gain and you're living in Toronto, you're fine probably from Canadian rules, but U.S. rules. 
you could have uh, an issue with regards to paying some U.S. taxes because they only have a 250000 U.S. Everyone in Toronto is a, mil- a millionaire now, so we spoke about that one. So and 250000 U.S. doesn't go a long way in Toronto, unfortunately. Well, for the Canadian dollar is falling, so you're talking about <laughs> 400 Canadian now. Yeah. Uh, Warren, very informative. Uh, Elena, I, I do thank you for, for coming and experiencing a little live radio show, <laughs> sort of, <laughs> with Jack Hartle and myself. Don't go anywhere. There's more great show right after this. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from the AM640 Studios in Toronto. For the love of money, Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein. Talk Radio, AM640. Welcome back. David Tulk, like Hulk, is on the phone with us. Institutional Portfolio Manager with that little firm, Fidelity. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you very much for having me. So now let's go through this again. How much money does Fidelity manage worldwide? So around the world, it's uh, $2.1 trillion at last count. Two point one. Boy, what, 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 what Trump would do with $2.1 trillion? He could build a wall. He could build some high... And that's U.S. dollars, right? So we're talking about $3 trillion Canadian. Something like that. That's, an, unbe- that's an unbelievable amount of money. Are you the second largest asset manager in the world? I believe that's correct, yeah. Second largest asset manager. I'm not going to ask you number one, as I hate people do that. You know? <laughs> hey, hey, Mom, I came in six. Who was number one? <sighs> that's, that's awful. pretty much awful. it. Is it terrible? So you, you, you have a very unique role, and you work with David Wolf. He couldn't make it, so they sent you along as a surrogate, but I know you're so much better than that, David. Um, but but you, you take things differently. You're not a fund manager. You're an asset allocator, and, and Jack and I really understand the importance of asset allocating. I'm not being funny here. I'm being serious because really 75% of financial performance is directed by asset call, correct? Yeah, that's really the approach that we take. So uh, I look at a balance sheet and an income statement and get pretty dizzy fairly quickly. So (laughs) what I prefer to do is take a top-down view of the world, figure out what the underlying economic environment is like, where we are in the business cycle, what central banks are doing, and then uh, allow that viewpoint to figure out what asset classes do well in different parts of the business cycle and then allocate accordingly. Yeah. So, so I would say looking top down here, David, where, where do you see the opportunities? Uh, at this point, uh, there are a couple of different uh, ways to look at it. I think uh, from a pure macro perspective, I would say that the global economy uh, feels reasonably healthy. Uh, what we've really recovered from has been a, from a balance sheet too much debt type of recession, and that's always moved uh, pretty slower than what we would get from other types of recessions. So we're beginning to put a fair bit of distance between us and those dark days of 2008 and 2009. So the healing from that recession has uh, finally allowed growth to become a little bit more synchronized. So led by the U.S., uh, Europe and emerging markets are trailing a little bit behind. So uh, through that lens, I think it's generally a pretty good environment for corporate earnings. Uh, where we would be a little bit more cautious, however, is just on outright valuations. Sure. And right. this is an example where it's really led by the U.S. Uh, valuations in the U.S. are quite expensive, especially in the equity market. Uh, so we would see maybe a little bit more of an opportunity on a relative basis uh, across uh, Europe as well as the Far East and also in emerging market economies. So, so with the global economy approving, like you said, uh, from a top-down view, and with Canada being an export-driven economy, um, you should be overweight Canada. Uh, uh, you, you guys are underweight at the moment, so, are, so what's yeah. your thought process yeah. there? And that's really, as we look at it, pretty much a fundamental recognition that what has really helped Canada's economy in the last, call it, five years or so is unlikely to continue to support it, and that's namely the housing market 
and related consumer spending. So you make a very fair point that as we approach a maturing economic cycle to be exposed to Canada is generally the type of exposure you would like. You get nice little commodity lift, you have those type of gains from trade, but our concern is a little bit more idiosyncratic as we were looking at the housing market and realizing that uh, household debt is too high, uh, leverage is generally a problem in the system. You're talking Canada uh, now. Yeah, exactly, in Canada. So whereas we look at other economies, they've ha- they've handled their leverage issues. Canada hasn't really I, I America pay the piper. I.e. America's dealt with their leverage issues, we believe, so correct? It, exactly. Yeah. In the private sector, you look at household debt to income, it's well off its peaks, and that's helping to uh, foster spending and uh, an improvement in the housing market. So they're really where we need to eventually get to. Unfortunately, we have to take our medicine along the way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How, how do we get there? How do we take that medicine and deleverage without too much uh, pain? Yeah, at this point, I mean, some pain will inevitably need to be felt, but we think of the catalyst, and this is you know, this is a fair point, because people would say that, you know what, the housing market was stretched this time last year, and if you uh, invested <laughs> it's up accordingly, 30% you would have been since higher. then, eh? It's unbelievable. Yeah, no, and it's only just drifted higher, and so what drift. we would think of... That's, no, that's uh, where the 30 <laughs> points ain't a drift. Well, it's a bit of a moonshot. But I want to ask you, Quentin, I want to come back at you here, in terms yeah. of, okay, the U.S. stock market is expensive, which means the Canadian stock market is expensive. But let's talk re- relative and absolute. You got some money. You can buy a stock. You can buy some bonds. You can buy a Toronto condo. Condo Chris was just in here to sell us some condos. Uh, so what is the most expensive asset on a relative basis? Stocks, bonds, real estate, emerging markets, and Europe. Yeah, I think here, if you want to include those real assets, uh, namely Toronto condos, for instance, I mean, that's probably where you're seeing the most uh, egregious overvaluation. And and that's some an area that I think, you know, you wouldn't want to include in a portfolio that's a little bit more tradable because you don't want to try to flip your condo as quickly as you can get in and out of uh, bonds or, or equities. So, yep. you know, that's putting that to the side. We would say that, you know, Canada and U.S. from an equity market perspective are probably more expensive than Europe and emerging markets on an outright basis. Uh, The world feels fairly close towards being priced for perfection. Everything, uh, like all assets. That's the feeling, yeah. I I I agree with you. So what do we do do do? as an asset manager? What what should Jack and I do? We can't buy Bitcoin. Can can Robo solve the problem? (laughs) No. (laughs) Will it Robo solve the problem? It does become a question of really finding where the relative opportunity is. So, but, but again, that's clear. what that's happens at the end. Phrase, it's a scary, scary phrase. Term. You're oh looking for gosh. relative valuation at the end of a cycle. It's it's tough, isn't it? We have a tough job ahead of us. Yeah, no, I think it is, and it's it's something that you know we were lucky for the last four or five years where there seemingly were more obvious trades that you could put in and you could ride. But you know, this is not the type of uh, type of market where you want to swing for the fences. This is a singles and doubles kind of uh, late late game type of uh, strategy. So, you know, keep your bets. We have to tell that to the Jays. Small. Yeah, well, they could do a little bit more than singles and doubles, I would hope, but <laughs> maybe I'll... I'm good with singles and doubles. I get the analogy. Yeah, small uh, ball. D- D- David Tolk, Fidelity Investments, Portfolio Manager, an absolute pleasure to have you on with us. I want to continue our macro talks uh, further down the road, so you keep up the good work. We'll keep investing with you, and I want to thank you for your participation in Hi-Fi Radio, AM 640. You're more than welcome. Thank you very much. Great. You've been listening to Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein and Jack Hartle, Portfolio Managers at Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. For questions about today's show or any money questions you need answered, email Wolf and Jack at WolfgangKlein.com. For the podcast of today's show, go to 640Toronto.com. New shows every week. Hi-Fi Radio, for the love of money. We'll see you next week.